You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, I'm Sarah Moore Fitzgerald, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Sarah Moore Fitzgerald. Her new book is called All the Money in the World. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Tony, how are you doing? I'm good. I want all the money in the world. How do I do that? I can send you all the money in the world now. I have a copy for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I was was reading right off. I was looking at your book as I was uh, doing the intro. So you've got all the money in the world already. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I oh, I love that. That's a, Yeah, I have all the money in the world. I'm fine. I'm set for life. Um <laughs> because it's your book. <laughs> no, I say um you know, I, I I know this is uh it says 10 years old and up because you 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 Yes, you're, exactly. Yeah. 10 plus. I like the idea that it's 10 and then everybody older than that, you know, because I love the idea that it would be that it would be appealed to people at any age, really, you know? Yeah. Well, especially, especially this concept because, you know, a, a kid can understand it, but then, I mean, we're all so messed up in our heads sometimes about money. I think we're all messed up a lot about money and yes. it's, that's yeah. why it's just such a universal like theme. Yeah. I mean, Tony, I, since I became a writer and long before I became a published writer, I always had this idea of a rags to riches story in my head. And also I like, I was talking about this the other night to a few friends online and, um, you know, I went through this kind of journey because I realized that practically all of my favorite books are probably rags to riches, you know, Charlie and the chocolate factory, Rebecca, David Copperfield, great expectations, you know, just there's a whole. It's just a meme that's just so solid. All mm-hmm. you can, you can, you can't, you know, come across a fairy tale without having something to do with rags and riches, Cinderella and Snow White and Rapunzel and, you know, all of them, Dick Whittington, all of them. So we, it's deep in us, you know, Tony. This whole idea that somebody ordinary and unremarkable can suddenly have it all. It's you know. Pygmalion and Pretty Woman, you, you know, it's just they go, those stories go on forever and they go way back. And we are, and, and, so- I, and I feel I feel very, un- very ordinary, and I think everyone feels that way, right? Yes, and also, yeah. the, it's the thing is that we we make. I mean, I suppose I didn't want to be too kind of preachy about it in the story because my main aim always, as you've always taught, as you've taught me this year, and as I've I've always learned that you know, it has to be a good story and you can't really be trying to preach and people have to get their own messages from it. But it did, it very much came from that thing you just said there a minute ago. We all, we have this really dysfunctional relationship with money. We think that, you know, we we play these tricks on ourselves and we play these if only games. And meanwhile, the riches of life are just whizzing by, you know, and we are missing them. And so I, I kind of wanted to explore that. I also think that kids now are just, you know, I mean, mirror, mirror on the wall, like, you know, the internet is throwing at them these images, these impossible images of riches and glamour and narrow standards of beauty and wealth and success, you know. And every time they look at a screen, which they do all the time, we've designed a world that makes it impossible for them not to, yeah. they 
they they look at pictures that make them feel really deficient about themselves that make they, they feel terrible about themselves more so than any of us did when I was growing up Tony I didn't even look in a mirror I, I thought I was gorgeous and I, it was because I didn't have anything to compare myself to I just thought I was you know I didn't even spend that much time thinking about it and then I look at my own daughters and I see how much anxiety there is around not having the things that they see other people having and I think it's really become um, so magnified in this social media world. And I really thought, I, I felt the kind of idea building because I really thought, you know, that would be a good thing to explore in a story, like a kid who feels really deficient, who doesn't actually have anything and who longs for this kind of mythical better life. And then what does she find? And what does she find out about herself? And what kind of loyalties get challenged and how does she reconcile all the things she discovers about what it is to be to have lots of money and to be wealthy so yeah that's so that's what it's about it's so interesting because i that that makes so much sense that kids are seeing too much of this where when when we were young you know when, when we were bopping around in the 70s and 80s or whatever you um your our world was not the opening to everything on everywhere our world was, um, oh, what we have, like, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a, a affluent um, family or anything. And, and most of my friends were the same like, kind of class. So everyone's just kind of, it, this is all normal. There, there's, yeah. no, there's nothing not normal because it's not being like thrown in our face. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, I remember going to like the first, you know, when you're in school and you walk into the house of someone that's like, has a lot, you know, the parents obviously have a lot more wealth than you. And you're like, wait everyone gets a bedroom huh how does that work but and but that's the first it gives us time to absorb that it gives us time to stay in almost our status quo and then absorb it yeah the gradual evolution of the discovery of kind of socioeconomic diversity is something it, to get your head around that step by step is actually really important and it gets thrown at them all in one go like raw sugar at the age of eight or whatever you know so hard so hard for them yeah i remember um I re you're, you're bringing up memories this is a therapy session by the way i hope you know this <laughs> is well this is this... space tony this is a safe space let it all out <laughs> i remember michael klesik in seventh grade told me that he had a mercedes and i didn't know what a mercedes was but he's like yeah my parents drive a mercedes and i was like huh and um and then i was like oh wait i think that means he's rich and i don't know why i have that image in my head and why that just came into my head you know my my parents drove my, my dad was a mechanic so he drove like secondhand cars that he worked on you know and it's <laughs> you know he had impalas and stuff like that where i'm just like so embarrassed Dad, why are you driving these idiot old people's cars in the, you know, with me in the school? And then now I'm like, oh my God, no, those were like hot rods and cool and everyone Seriously, else. Seriously, I was going to say you'd have been serious street cred with that <laughs> yeah. <comment>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know I had street cred when I had street cred. And, they, <laughs> and maybe that was, you know, I love saying uh, his full name, Michael Klesik. We, uh, uh, we're still in our, each other's stratosphere. Maybe he'll hear this. But, um, but what's interesting is maybe he saw my dad drop me off in a certain type of car and wanted to tell me, oh, hey, we have this because he felt inferior. Exactly. And we don't. That's the other thing is like, you know, I said to my children all the time, never compare 
other people's outsides to your insides you know you you're thinking of and all of these assumptions that we make and you know the constant comparisons you know uh, Oscar Wilde famously said comparisons are odious and it's really bad for us all to be comparing ourselves to each other because we don't get to relish our own particular brand of craziness and also the surprise as you said there that people envied you when you were at school and all you did was think you were the lowest form of life. I mean, that's everyone's story and your own story, your own beautiful book, um, Confessions of a Jesus Jerk. Like Gabe is a perfect example of that. He just thinks everyone else is cooler and better than him. And he's just awful. And he's he feels completely deficient. And his journey to discovering his own agency is, I mean, that's, that's the story of us all, isn't it really? It's so universal. Yeah. And also as, as we start to realize Oh, wait, nobody has it together. They pretend like they have it together, but no one has it together. And then exactly. once you realize that, you kind of, ha- you go, okay, so I need to hang out with people who don't have it together. Exactly. And then- <laughs> There's something so liberating about that, isn't there? The finding your, your tribe and recognizing that truth that people are, you know, and the more someone looks like they have it together, the more suspicious you should be about the fact that they don't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, if there's a, if there's a white picket fence and 2.5 kids, yeah. Now I look at them and go, Oh, what's going on underneath (laughs) that? (laughs) We used to go out to, for other families when my kids were small and I'd come home and like my kids would have just run riot and we'd have, I'd be at home and I'd say, Jared, why? on earth like they, why do they have kids that are so well behaved and he goes they must be drugging them or they must be machines or something like that so yeah put it all in context yeah yeah imperfect I mean and that don't you love that when people you know this terrible pressure to present yourself as having it all together and being perfect and being beautiful and being the right weight and all that stuff that we just put huge pressure on ourselves don't you love it when someone comes into a room and just declares themselves in all their imperfections. It's so liberating for everybody, you know? So yeah, that's, I don't think we explore that enough. I don't think we do. Maybe (sighs) in young adult fiction, we probably do actually, but in life, I don't think we do it enough. It's funny. I think uh, like a lot of comedians, even the top comedians in the world who are selling out stadiums and whatever, they'll, they always have something. They'll, they'll call out the elephant in the room about themselves. There was uh, one of, uh, you know, uh, Joe Rogan did a special and he said, look at me. And he pulled up his, he put his two fingers, his thumbs up like this. And he's like, I look like a thumb between two thumbs. And, you know, cause he's got the bald head and everything. And you kind of look at it and you're like, yeah, he kind of does. And, does. But, but at the same time, he's, he, it's just like, we're all weird. Okay. Now that we're weird, let's talk about some stuff. <laughs> and, and it might be weird, but we'll just talk it's yeah so true that's so true and I love that about comedians that they it's it speaks to the kind of you know probably lots of scars you know that he has to put he has to in a way you defuse all the bullies in the room by declaring the weird thing about yourself first they, they've got nowhere to go then they can't attack you because you've already defused it by recognizing your imperfections and that's a really clever that's a really emotionally savvy thing to do isn't it yeah, it is. And it, and I think a lot of it also has to be with, um, what do you call it? The uh, self-awareness and yeah. just, you know, it's yeah. just like, I mean, I've, I've gained the COVID 35. Some people gain the COVID 20, you know, 20 pounds. <laughs> what, what do they call it in your country? It's not pounds. It's stone. We, stone. stone. Yeah. Stone. Yeah. 
I, seriously, I am carrying around the COVID stone with a vengeance. Probably two of them at this point. Yeah, so and that, in pounds, it's like it's. Uh, I suppose one hundred and twenty. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> you sound like one of my children now, Tony. <laughs> do your do your yeah, children absolutely. do your children do your children check you like that? Do they go? I know they just anything that they can get me on, they will. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> oh, so you go. So that's a that's a good way to have a relationship with your children. You walk into a room and you just go, "Hey, look, I'm aging. I got a few more grays. Who wants cereal?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right yeah i gotta get that all up front or else they'll be at me for the day basically yeah. but yeah that putting on the cove what's that all about i mean i have become completely addicted to ice cream i've become totally unbridled when it comes to indulging my appetite i'm sure it was comfort eating i'm sure we were i was just trying to say you know it's like this primal thing this is a terrible uncertain thing i need to put down loads of fat in case I have to survive in the jungle or something. I I think we were all trying to find comfort in a time that was just out of control. And it, it's, it blows, I mean, and it makes sense, but at the same time, it kind of blows my mind how all of a sudden, like we're kind of opened up here in, uh, in the United States, in California. I, you know, I went to a restaurant last night. <clears throat> I saw people's lips, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, what's, what's interesting is, there are people that are kind of not acknowledging it. They're just like, we're back. And then they don't want to think about how bad it was. And I, and, and I get that because it's kind of like, we just got out of it and it was bad. And then there's other people, you know, I, there's other people I talk to. It's just like, okay, how bad was it for you? And it's just like, Oh my God, yeah. you know, it's, it's, and it's so hard to pinpoint. It's hard to go. Oh yeah. My tragedy was really bad because I didn't see anyone for four months and I live alone. You know, it's just like people go, Oh, at least you had a place to live. And I'm like, mm. I didn't see anyone's eyeballs. That, that, that drives me crazy, you know? And but like Tony, even just saying that, you know, that we, how we could have even predicted a time when all of these months would go by and we wouldn't get to see someone in the face. That is a huge, huge tragedy. That's the word for it. It's awful. And you don't get those months back. Like that's gone now. Yeah. It's so really hard. So, so yeah, my relationship with uh, ice cream and sugary goods just became, they, it became very solid. We actually talk to each <laughs> other a lot more and we like discuss it and then I eat it. <laughs> consume, consume, consume. Oh yeah. It's, it's hard. And we're all, I think people are still, uh, I think there's a real, I mean, we still got a lot of lockdown here. We're still, I don't know, are you guys all vaccinated now or what's, how is it working? Yeah, well, um, theoretically, so everyone can get the vaccine and then yeah. there's about half of the country going, yeah, but that means that, um, you know, that I ally with uh, transgenders. So I'm not getting, it, it's, it's so, it's so weird how the conversation has gotten to a level of where kindergartners can go, that person's really weird. You know, if they, if everyone was a kindergartner, most of these people would just be ostracized because their reasoning's out of control. And it's, um, I get the concerns, you know, it's like, let's talk yeah. about the vaccine. Let's, let's stay yeah. on that. But it's just like, well, I wear a red hat and you wear a blue hat. I so I'm not going, I'm not doing what you do with the blue hat. And I'm like, so divisive. Yeah. And so yeah. illogical. And yeah, so I mean, I think here there's more, probably more people I don't there isn't 
I mean, we've got loads of different political divisions, obviously, and different views, but I think there's more unity around just the belief in the vaccine. It's just that we haven't, we're still only, I think, 60% of the population have now been vaccinated. So we still have all our young people haven't been vaccinated. No, you know, I think maybe the 40 plus is an over. Oh, okay. so we've still got a long way to go. I mean, everyone's hoping, hoping to open up higher education in September, but our 20 somethings are all unvaccinated still so we have yeah. to wait and see and going to raves and sweating on each other and spitting into each other's eyeballs yeah i mean yeah i and like you kind of can't blame them for just going i mean they were so good for so long and you just think that's the summer like if you're 21 you don't get the summer of being 21 back ever again and if you're locked up in your little bubbles it just must be hellish so i think any chance for them to get together and socialize they've been trying you know they've been embracing it so it's like trying to keep a puppy in a bathroom. And it's just like, no, the puppy's got to go play with each other and roll around. And it's yeah. such a necessity for development in life. It's just, yeah. and it, I really, yeah. I felt really bad for people. You know, it's, I think it was a little, I don't, I don't know if it's easier for kids who are like in elementary school and stuff. Cause they're, I think they're a little easy, a little more easily adaptable. They're like, we don't know. We don't have reference points yet. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I got to wear a mask for two years. I guess that happens every two years, but you yeah, get these exactly. kids that are just like craving being in a, in an environment, almost craving getting bullied and then finding it, you know, it's, it, all that stuff's important. All those lessons in life, all those things when they're supposed to be out there making decisions and learning things for themselves. And, you know, who wants to be locked up with your parents for the whole, you know, for 18 oh. months? I mean, what a nightmare for them. Really, yeah. really. Awful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I'm 55 and I, I mean, I, I love my friends and I love my social life, but I'm really happy to close the door on the world as well, especially as a writer, you know, so there were aspects of COVID that I really, I mean, I, I can't say I enjoyed it, but I did, you know, I did slow down. I did kind of recognize the small joys of not just Ben and Jerry's, but also just sitting in the garden, drinking a cup of tea or, you know, chatting to my husband or just do loads of reading, which I, I mean, I'm a big reader, but I haven't read as much as I, I did during COVID, which some people said they found impossible, but which I found a huge comfort, you know? So for me as an older person with, who's done all my mad partying, it was, you know, I had a fairly good COVID comparatively speaking, but for the 20 somethings, I just think they were going out of their minds. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I also had my family around me, Tony, like I didn't live alone. I think yeah. if I lived alone, I'd have been in a very different headspace than I am now, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I would, Alone was rough. I'm like, all right, we go in lockdown again. I got to get my pod of like weirdos and I'm going to hate their guts and it's going to be too intimate. And then we'll, and then we'll come out easier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, oh, I, I had a, yeah, you, you, you said something so great. And then I like had a thought and then it went away. It happens all the time. My short term, I mean, I haven't, like my memory that's something that's really happened in covid is like yeah my i my memory things that i i don't know i think you know that somebody was saying it to me my uh, a friend of mine who's a psychologist she said you know all those little interactions when you're out in the world the people that you they're not necessarily your friends but you bump into them at work or on a corridor and you kind of have to be on your game you have to say remember their wife's name or you know what where they went on holiday so that you can kind of grease the wheels of social interaction that gives keeps you cognitively sharp all those yeah. little moments of social contact 
And when they're gone, actually, you get really blunt. You get really kind of slow. Yeah. Things. And I've definitely found that. So, I mean, yeah, I really I'm really looking because socialization keeps you clever, I think. In the way comedians show all the time that having to be quick, having to respond fast. uh, We've lost a bit of that, I reckon. Yeah. And, and even, uh, you know, it's because uh, <laughs> during COVID, you know, I'd have to like drive and go get my groceries or whatever. And it's just I noticed that, you know, I'm in Los Angeles, not not the most not the most gracious driving place in the world. If you're if you you know, if you're at a green light for two seconds, there's a horn going. But 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 then during COVID, everyone's just like, they're probably having a bad day. So everyone kind of gave them it was just like, oh, you just made a left turn in front of me. We're all going to screech in the stop. You know, it's, 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 we're in a rough time. And then now the horns are honking again. And it makes me rejoice because I'm just like, there we go. We're checking each other. We're going, God, you know, and I, I even, I'm like, I was driving the other day and I, I honked for the first time at someone because they were just being dangerous and stupid. And I, and I was just like, God, I was like, that guy's an asshole. And I was like, what a wonderful feeling. <laughs> And we're back in the room. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's that's good feeling. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> like each other sharp. Yeah, it's. I want to be irritable at a cafe again because people are talking loud on their cell phones about a tech job, and I'm like, would you go get an office? Because we're at a cafe and I'm trying to read, and and that irritation that used to bug me to death, I embrace now. I'm like, oh, thank you. I hate your guts, but thank you. <laughs> That's so great. That's so wise, Tony, as well. Yeah. <laughs> Relish all those things that we've missed so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even the bad yeah. stuff. No, we, yeah. we better tell the listeners where you're from so they know your accent. So I am, I grew up in Dublin, which is on the east coast of Ireland. And I now live in Limerick, which is in the Midwest. Um, and I've lived here for all my adult life. I did spend a bit of time. I mean, I was actually born in New York. My parents, both Irish, spent um the early 60s in new york my dad was an architect so we have a lot of of lovely kind of connections and associations with new york um so Wait, what part I, what part of new york were they in the, in the they city they lived on on 12th street it's very cool oh in, wow in the early 60s yeah, yeah. and like, there's all these photographs of my parents like looking r- like something out of a movie like like really slim dad with really slim tie and kind of Beatles haircut and hanging out with really with people with them, um, you know, like cigarette holders and just very cool. Um, yeah. So 12th Street at a time when I guess they were they were there from around 1962 to 66 or something like that. Yeah. Did you then, get to keep a dual citizenship? Yeah, I got um, I had it's actually lapsed, but I have an American, I mean, as well as an Irish. It staff, lapsed. But you can get it back quick though, right? I think I can get it back. Yeah. It's just, it's, I'm so bureaucratically bad. I need to stay on top of it, but I think, yeah, I can get it back now. Yeah. Especially with Joe in the white house, because he just, he's such an Irish. uh, He's so sympathetic to the Irish. So I just feel all I have to do is say, come on, Joe, let me have my passport back. (laughs) And why why is he sympathetic? I, I, you know, I know enough about, I I try not to know too much about politicians because a lot of them are just out of their minds, but, but, uh, but, why is Joe sympathetic to the? Uh... Well, he's Irish. I mean, he, he's is he think, Irish? Yeah, he's Irish American. Very kind of card carrying Irish American. From mm. uh, yeah, so he ta- famously when he was first interviewed, the BBC 
wanted to talk to him. They kind of buttonholed him as he was, you know, just around the time that he, uh, everybody knew that he had won the election. And he said, they said, uh, President Biden, we're from the BBC. And he goes, I'm Irish and kind of pass him by. And everyone <laughs> <laughs> so, so everyone in Ireland was cheering about Biden because he, he, he called it out. He's like, I'm Irish. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that is so <laughs> rad. I love that. Yeah. It, it kind so, yeah. Of, yeah, it, it blows my mind that, um, you know, because I live in the uh, a part, you know, a part of me lives in the American, well, all of me lives in the American bubble, literally. But, um, but there's like, I, I, it's hard, you know, traveling was great when you go to other countries and you see how, oh, wait, that's how we're perceived. But to even for other countries to even know, I, I don't know who the political, who the, who's in politics in Ireland. And it's, it, you know, not that not that I'm proud of that in any way at all. I don't know the politicians in America, but at the same time, you know, I, I know the vice president and president. And then like after that, it's all kind of muddy. Uh, yeah. But look, I mean, you know, I, we're a tiny country. And so it's like, you know, like anything, you know, the, it's the small animal has to study the big animal, not the other way around. It's just that's just the way it is. So I think we do. We come across as being very self-aware, but I think there's something quite um, Darwinian about that. Do you know what I mean? That we that we would know, we would see an awful lot of the news. It, we wouldn't even have to seek it out that much to know about, you know, who was in control of the superpowers, who are the most powerful men in the world, basically. So that's right. kind of, that. I think that just is, I don't think you should beat yourself up too much about that. I beat um, myself up about everything and I beat myself <laughs> up way too much. But thank you for letting me off the hook on that one. <laughs> oh, we would go for, for like four or five hours if I could just go over the list of the things I beat myself up for. <laughs> that would be good. That'd be a good program. It's like all the things that Tony DeShane beats himself up about. Oh, Think yeah. <laughs> I think like four people would like it and most of my friends would be like oh yeah I, li I listened to the first 10 minutes and then they No, I think anything. that would be a viral viral podcast. I think you would just go completely intergalactic with that. It's like you know, we were saying at the beginning, you know, everyone, like all those self-recriminations, people would be identifying with those and they'd be riffing off it, yeah. Interesting, you know, I, cause I used to do, uh, I mean, Drinks with Tony used to be on radio and in studio and when I was in San Francisco and around like 2005, when I was in therapy, I asked my therapist, I said, would you come on the show and we'll just do therapy? Just, we'll just have my therapy session on the show. And she, and she's just like, I can't do that. And I'm just like, ah, damn it. Cause that would be fun. You, you, you know, I'm a mess, but I would be totally truthful on the show and it would probably, you know, sink anyone. They'd be like, wow. You know, but at the same time, like you said, other people would be like, oh, I've thought of that. Huh? Yeah. At least he said it out loud. I would never say that out loud. You know, yeah, I'm telling you, I, this, I, that would be such a success. And like, you'd have parents all over the world saying, you know, there's always someone in the world worse off than you. His name is Tony Duchesne. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> the parents would be saying, we can never have Tony Duchesne babysit our children. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> All my babysitting gigs would dry up. <laughs> I'd lose my whole babysitting career. <laughs> oh, you're hilarious. <laughs> But, so um, yeah, I live in Ireland, and uh, but we Irish all do an awful lot of traveling all the time. I mean, like Irish people are always going away, and um, and then some of us come back. Like I did go to the states for the summers when I was in college, spent 
time, you know, doing the European kind of tour and the interrailing and all that. But um, I do like living in Ireland. I, I mean, it's got a lot of, just like all the whole world, it's got, it's got its problems and its challenges, but yeah, I like Ireland. I like Limerick as well. Limerick is a great town. It's quite a gritty place. It's a really um, interesting working class place. People are very, um, you know, there's no, like I'm, I grew up in Dublin. I was, and it was a bit kind of posher, a bit middle, more middle class. And I came to Limerick and there's just no bullshit in Limerick. People just don't tolerate anyone who's uh, too much self-regard for themselves or, um, yeah, so you get you get taken down to size in Limerick, which I, I like quite a lot. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, get, I get a kick out of that, too. I was um, I grew up near San Francisco. Uh, I grew up like right by the San Francisco airport. So it was a dreary suburb. It really sucked. And um, and then I was I was in I was uh, right before pandemic. I was in Rhode Island and in Providence and kind of like the, the so-called dreary parts of Providence. And I looked around and I felt so comfortable. I was like, oh, my God, this, 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 it like, you know, and just interacting with the people there who are looking at you like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I'm like, this feels like where I, I, I was like, oh, that I would so good. fit in there. I, that, yeah. so I, Rhode Island, I remember being in Rhode Island um, years and years ago, and I had the best cheesecake in a restaurant called the Black Pearl, a chocolate chip cheesecake, which I still huh. dream about. It probably was. I mean, I don't, you know, the way some things get built up in your head. But anyway, I remember the food there was just absolutely great. And I love the Rhode Islanders. Yeah, they're great. And they're, they, yeah. It's like, yeah, Limerick, um, how do, Limerick people are very kind, but they hide their kindness. You know, they don't want anyone to think you, they would go out of their way to do you a favor. So they give, it's, it's kind of lovely. They do favors under the table and say, don't tell yes. anyone I did that for you. Like, and I just think there's something lovely about that. Whereas, other places would be making a big deal about you know doing being nice to people but their their kindness is hidden yeah which it's is it, it's beautiful because that's i i feel like that's how it should be these i i these people oh my god i we i got stories about this but i i, I was like i ghost wrote a couple of books you know to make some money and, and they were and Did they you? were uh, yeah they, i didn't but, know that but they but these books were like um what do you call it uh they, they were they were self-help books for these people oh, yeah. who were, uh, you know, one was a real estate agent and it's just like, you know, I'm the best real estate agent. I make all this money, this, and this, I have all this beautiful and this is how I created everything. And then they want me to write their self-help books so they can get out of the real estate agents uh, thing. Cause there's no soul in it. So they could become um, life coaches <laughs> and, and every, and even the wording of like, I make people's dreams come true. I help them buy a house. I'm like, no, you get a commission. Okay, but I'll just bite my lip. You know, you're just working a job. You know, you're not saving the world. Uh, it, it, everyone, there's so much um, just in, every, in the little stupid things that we're supposed to do in life. People are like walking around with a huge flag going, I helped this person, person. And they're like, how much money did you make from that? And, uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course I made money. But uh, if they didn't have me in their lives, it, it's that yeah that's uh wow i i ranted there for a while how much do i owe you for this session <laughs> i just think you're just absolutely brilliant and also you it's like you have this brain that you're obviously a creative writer because it's like you have these 
synapses that are going off all the time and linking with something else and bringing a new memory or idea or theory into the room. You just, you, you do you ever sleep, Tony DeShane? <laughs> <laughs> I I think they have uh I think they have pills and prescriptions for what for what I have. Yeah, it's uh <laughs> actually don't yeah, take I, them. Don't take them. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't be blunting that. <laughs> no lobotomies, please. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's funny. You know, you think about lobotomies, and and sometimes just like, do they know? If they don't know, that might be a good way to go through life. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just drooling. I'm the drooling guy and you, you uh, can get to the front of uh, lines quicker if you're drooling and you, yeah, and and your mouth is, you know, like I do know what you mean. It would be lovely not to have to feel all the feels and think all the thoughts and, but you know, Oh, just, yeah. Blunt is not like alive. Even if it's a pain, even if it's anxious, even if it's stressful, alive and alert and present is better than anything. Don't you think? I think I'm more alive when things are, when I'm struggling than when things are in, when everything's going great. Um, I go, I mean, this is probably not a great way to live, but I go, Oh my God, where's the problem. But I think, well, this is what I've tried to learn, you know, as I've been reading during COVID, cause I got into like these, I'm, I'm reading all these, like, how do, what about the brain and all this stuff? I'm like, yeah. let me try to understand. And um, it's even where we crave struggle so much as humans that even when things are great, we're looking, we're looking for problems because we want to, because our subconscious wants to solve problems. This is, this is what I've gathered. And, um, but it's like, oh wait, steer into the greatness, find the problems in the greatness. And then, and then, and then the, the brain kind of goes, oh yeah, we got problems. We're good now. And you're just like, okay, great. Yeah. This I'm totally yeah, stressed I, out, but it's I, for I, a good I, thing. We frame it like that because that, that's it. We're designed. We're problem solving machines. That's what fiction is about. You know, the whole, conflict and the obstacles and how you get over them. I mean, the happy ever after bit at the end is when the story's over, you know, there's no story anymore. Yeah. And when the, you know, um, David Nichols, oh, he, who, who's a writer I really love. Um, and he's written, one of his books is called Sweet Sorrow and it's sort of mirroring Romeo and Juliet, but it's like a, a modern romance. And he says, you know, if you put, take between your fingers, the pages where the lovers are happy and where they're, you know, together. It's just boring, you know, it's yeah. just boring. So the happy bit of life, we're not designed to be kind of big and stupid and complacent and happy. Like that's not, that's not really what being human is all is for. So I think that's great. The idea that problems are what we are designed to rise above and in, invent solutions to and that's when we're at our best you know like yeah. I think yeah. you know it would be life would be so boring if we didn't have any problems I know that sounds so kind of facetious but I do think that's true it's, it, these people who um I mean this is that this is a life I never really understood or got into it's the people who are working for retirement and they hate their jobs and they can't wait till the weekend so they can go to a chain restaurant and have you know uh goofy uh, cocktails oh can i get more whipped cream with my baileys and then you know they and then they are back to work on monday and they hate it but they have all their friends who hate it too and then they can't wait till they're 64 so they can go move to a beach somewhere so they can drink those frou-frou cocktails and there's nothing interesting about living on a beach and drinking frou-frou cocktails absolutely nothing. nothing i mean for a week it's fine no we've been but, sold a lie i mean that's just, it's like 
and the world wants us to like work and work and work and work with this and then there's a picture of the beach up on our desks and that's where we're going it's just a complete lie i mean beaches are awful places you get sand everywhere you can't eat properly I remember Michael Palin very wisely. He, you know, do you know Michael Palin from the Monty Python? Of I love Michael of Palin, especially his travel series and Paul to Paul. Oh my God, I love them too. And I remember, I think it was Michael Parkinson was interviewing him, and he said, "You know, after all your travels, like, is there one thing that you can say that you've learned?" And he said, "Yeah, there actually is one thing I can say, and that is, there is no paradise on earth." You know, wherever you go, you've got this image of this beautiful place. But actually, when you get there, you got to bring yourself with you, you know, and all the discomforts it is to be in a body. And, you know, you get too hot in these glorious paradises or, you know, you get indigestion when you eat lobster or, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like all these fantasies we have come with just a very banal price that we don't really think about until we get there. And then we go, oh, yeah, this is what I've been working for all my life. I, I, I just watched something about him when he went to the uh, Himalayas and he was, he had to hike for like three days through the Himalayas. And I think, I can't remember exactly where he was, but he was having a really hard time on the hike and, and he was in his sixties and they were in there. They were interviewing him now. I think he's like, is he like in his late seventies or 80 now? Oh, I don't know. He must be like, he seems so eternally young. All those guys. I know. He must be in his 70s now, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, and he was just saying, he was like, I look back at that and I remember the discomfort, but what a cool thing to be in my 60s and do that where other people in their 60s wouldn't do that. And it, it's, I love what, I love that he threw himself in things. And, yeah. and he, you know, he did find paradise, though I think he did, because he communicated with people during distressful times that, that he put himself in these, situation I, I watch some of those travel things i'm like i can't be on that boat for three days i would freak out how do you i would i would have to have a bottle of jameson a day just to get across the ocean of whatever you're doing and then i would have to go to aa the minute i got off on shore <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny yeah yeah he's he's an e he's just one of those affable characters he just seems to be able to connect with everybody amazing what a, guy what a lovely gift that we have that there is monty python you know how how close was it that we didn't get a monty python and then because even in the united states uh, you know uh i think we got them on a public public um like a public uh station where you know 11 at night in the corner but they blew up here because people were craving that type of comedy they were they were craving these people that were just you know Ministry of Silly Walks, the, the oh. argument, the argument sketch where they're, they're just like, oh, oh, you want abuse? Oh, no, that's down the hall. <laughs> I mean, it opened a door, didn't it? It just suddenly said, you know, this, it made so many other kinds of comedy possible, I think. They really were groundbreakers. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I remember when A Fish Called Wanda came out and I was just like, with, you know, because they had John Cleese and Paul, uh, Michael Palin. Yeah. I think, were they the only two in there from uh, Python? I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But I love that movie so much. And it was just, there's John Cleese kind of playing the romantic, you know, guy in it. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, those guys. You know, they, they, those are the people that make it, that make every day waking up and you go, I want to see what Michael Palin's doing. And then, you know, like, and then we, we get to do a little of that as writers because there's a couple of people reading our books, right? So, so there's got to be someone out there going, 
oh sarah moore fitzgerald i'm so glad she has a new book out even though it feels weird to, i don't I, for me it feels very weird if i think of myself at that way where i'm just like you know when i get an email and someone's like oh i saw the movie i read the book i'm just like oh you did you were the one <laughs> so I, Tony, isn't it the strange thing? I think there's a really strange thing about, because you know, when you're writing a book, it's all, it's so private. It's all inside your head. You sort of never really, I mean, I never really quite believe it when someone says, oh my God, so I really loved Oscar in what, in whatever. And I kind of go, sorry, have you been inside my head? Like I, I forget that it's out there sometimes or that my work is out there. And I also think, I remember when my first book was published, it was the weirdest thing, and I've often talked about this um, to my writing students as well, that, um, you know, this thing you're longing for, you know, the way writers, before they get published, they think that is the thing. That's all <laughs> among in the world. If I got published, yes. all my problems would be over. And I'm just like... I, I'm still hurt by that, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, so, you know, it is a goal to achieve, and it's a hard, it is a hard thing to do for sure, because you have to write a coherent book and someone has to like it and then someone has to be able to sell it to their marketing crew and so on and so forth. But I remember the night before my book launched, my very first novel was being launched and I kind of had a moment where I realized, oh my God, this private world is, is over now, you know? It was kind of like a grief that even if only one or two people read your book it's it becomes a different thing when it goes out into the world it doesn't really belong to you as much as it does when you're writing secretly and privately and furtively and there's something that you lose I think when you become a published writer that um pre-published writers still have and that is utter secrecy and total control um over their own characters and what's happening and I think that's a really interesting thing and I say to my students, you know, I hope you all get published, but also remember there is something lovely about where you are now because, it, you know, you're just doing it for yourself. You may, even if you want to be published, this is all yours, this world that you're creating. And it's, it's as close to being, you know, a five-year-old kid as you can get, I think. The, the lovely thing about being published, and this is what I, and I tell this to my students too, is when, you, when you're published, you get, you know, I, I had a lot of writer friends that were published before I got published and I finally got published and it's just like, oh, congratulations. But then there's the, <laughs> it's just kind of like, hey, we did it. Yeah. All right. You want, you want some tea? <laughs> there's, there's that weird nothingness that still happens. It's just what we were talking about. It's the striving. It's the trying. That's when we're at our most human. That's when we're at our most alive, when we're trying, when we're kind of, trying to beat the odds. And then when you've done it, it's like, what do I do now? Yeah. It's like that old Peggy, is it Peggy Lee who's saying, uh, is that all there is? Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Perfect. That's it. Yeah. Is that all there is to getting a yeah. book published? Is that all there is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and then I'm we got your next book launch, Tony, and I'm going to sing that song. Okay, good. That is on the record, everybody. I am holding you to that. And um, I, that will be fantastic. And the, um, when, when, so you got your first, when, when did you publish your first book? How, so my first book came out in 2013. It's called Back to Black Brick. Mm -hmm. And then my second one came out quite soon after that. And that one's called The Apple Tart of Hope. 
So they were the two books that kind of really made me, especially the Apple Tart of Hope did really well. It's like 18 different languages. Oh, wow. It, it was published in the States as well. So that that's, um, it's still in print over there, I think. And um, so, yeah. And then I just discovered I had this kind of untapped seam with a whole ocean of different stories. So I've kind of been writing... Um, not quite a book a year since then, but, um, you know, every, maybe every 18 months, a new one has come out. So, and I'm in the middle of trying to uh, wrestle the new one to the ground now. This one is just out, but I am, I should have my seventh novel finished by the end of the summer. Fantastic. On your first two, did you write them the way they were published when they came out or did you write one earlier you know how some like writers, oh, yeah. they'll, they'll they'll be like, oh yeah, they'll be like, this is their first novel, this is their second. Yeah, but I they actually, those. I think that's probably the reason I was able to kind of, because my first, I had loads of notes, loads of unfinished stuff that I then had to scrabble through because I got a three book deal. I said, okay, my God, what am I going to write next? So I had a lot of, I mean, I'd been writing since I was a child, really. Yeah. Um, but that's a famous writer in Ireland who I work with, Donal Ryan. He's a great friend of mine. His first book was actually his set yeah he his first book that was published was called the spinning heart but the book he wrote first came out second and it was called the thing about december so he had that in reserve uh-huh so that's nice yeah yeah oh what was it like getting a three book deal because people think yeah, this is what people think when they have a three book deal oh my it, it, when someone else does they're like oh my god that's the greatest thing ever but there's pressure on that yeah you know, you, when you write the first one, it's like, okay, great. And then you think, oh my God, <laughs> it's a bit like giving birth. It's like, do I have to do that twice more now? And you just, it's unthinkable. And you have to wait for the reservoir to fill up again and, you know, rev up and get ready. But in a way, I think I'm the kind of person that it's really good for, Tony, because deadlines are definitely my friend. I mean, without, you know, the way that your course is structured and um it really helped me. I was often working at the last minute, but I just had to get my stuff in for Tony. So that is a really important discipline for me. I Any excuse and I will goof off. I mean, I'm a terrible, you know, I, I'll read other people's books rather than write my own. I'll get, go down an internet rabbit hole. I mean, I'm just so easily taken from my task. And so I need the adrenaline of deadlines and a, and a contract that I can be sued for breaking. Do you know what I mean? Before I <laughs> keep on writing. So that's good for me. A gun so to I the got, head. It, yeah, the way it's gone for me, I had my first deal was two books. My second deal was two books. And I'm just writing the third now of my, my three book deal. And when I say that, Tony, I think, is that really true? But it, apparently it is. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't know how it happened. No, you wake, because uh, uh, I, I think people think you wake up, you know, your assistant hands you the newspaper. Yeah, 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 and then and then you write for about twenty minutes, and you go, well, that's a day, and then it's and it's just like, no, you wake up and you're and you're just like, oh crap, I'm a writer, but that's a good thing too. But oh crap, but now I got to do this. All right, yeah. back to the page. Yeah, and the other thing is that writing has never been my like I've never been a full time writer, so I've always had a thing, a day job, a busy day job that I love teaching and research and all sorts of other stuff. So I like the idea that writing is kind of still a bit subversive, that I do it under cover of darkness, that it's something I have to fit in cleverly in the kind of crevices of my life. And 
kind of I like to kind of fantasize I'm a sort of a ninja writer because I just do it in these like little kind of moments that uh, I have to snatch from different parts of my life so and it's easier now than it was when I started out because my kids were really young now they're all kind of practically grown up and self-sufficient so I, I get more like my my after work time is my own a bit a bit more than it used to be so yeah, time management, it's one of, I guess it's one of those mysteries for writers and everyone does it a little bit differently. It's really interesting, like the last, like out of the last 10, like uh, Drinks of Tony episodes, three of them, uh, about three of them were women who started writing when they were uh, either pregnant or on maternity leave. And then they became writers and that was their yeah. jam. That and was it, me. Yeah. That was me. Wait, wait, did you, were you really, when you were on maternity leave, you like dove in or? Yeah, I started my third maternity leave, which was my, obviously my, my third child. And that's when I really, I mean, I had this big kind of, you know, state of the nation, despair, drunk talk with my husband one night when I, just after, when I turned 40. And I said, oh my God, I'm 40. I'm never going to do it now. And he was like, what are you talking about? I said, I'm never going to write the novel I always wanted to write. And he goes, Sarah, like, I never see you writing. You know, if you want to write, I mean, he didn't go, oh, darling, it's okay. He gave me a really tough kind of love chat. He goes, if you really want to write a book, to stop going on about it and do something about it. You know, even if you just write for 15 minutes a day and I go, but I'm not good enough and I don't have time. And he goes, so what? You, you know, everyone thinks that. Loads of people didn't think they were good enough, but doesn't mean you don't, you can't try. So just get going on it and stop giving me a pain in my neck listening to you lamenting that you haven't met a life goal so kind of I think I was ready to hear that and I think he 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 spoke great wisdom to me and he didn't take any of my he didn't indulge any of my kind of um histrionics you know and I just started to write for 15 minutes a day and gradually I developed you know I did all those things you have to do I had to put my huge big elephants of self-doubt into the corner and say sit down there while I get the writing done and then you can do what you like so I silenced my elephant of self-doubt and just wrote for 15 minutes and then after a year I had 365 15 minute writing sessions and something had kind of coalesced into a story and then I became so I wasn't ever very calibrated I didn't ever do any planning or plotting I just saw what came out so that took a long time but I just gradually, I guess that's what you're doing. You're developing the craft. Every sentence you write, you're learning something else about how to articulate something on the page. And it was a very gradual thing for me. Um, you know, it took me a long time to write my first novel because I didn't, I didn't have a method. I just had um, a kind of a habit. I just developed a habit. That's what it was, yeah. You just, you, you show up to the page. It's the only way yeah. you can write. Exactly. It, people are it's uh, I, I love how people are looking for the shortcut so so do you can i do a structure class with you what's the structure i'm like no 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 just write a good story and you just got to keep coming to it but, but and then even with the screenwriting students i'll get a lot of people like look okay so i have this they'll, they'll come up with these very small technical things that they want to make absolutely sure about and i'm like you're, you're looking at the wrong area it's character yeah. and it's conflict that's all you have to worry about. But if a producer is looking at your screenplay, they're not going to be like, oh, they put cut two in the wrong place. They're going to be like, what is this? Why is this interesting? That's all they care about. Who is this guy? Yeah. Why do I care? Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. 
And I think when you're fiddling with the little things, it's a sign that you aren't really spending time in the right place, getting inside the heads of your characters. So that's really because all the little things will look after themselves in the in the end, in the final kind of tidy up. And yeah. if you start worrying about those now, I mean, it's like that thing, you know, don't be worrying about what color your curtains are going to be if you haven't laid the foundations of your bloody house, you know, so it's exactly that. I am using that. That is so good. <laughs> Do you use that on your students? I use it. It's all yours, Tony. You can. Oh, okay. I'll be the guy in the United States that uses it. I'll never use it in Ireland. And then when you come to the United States and you do it, you, you could totally use it and be like, no, Tony got that from me, but you know, and, and I'll be like, no, I got that from her. It's, it's on record. So were you teaching writing before you started uh, writing your um, first novel? You know, this is really interesting. I was teaching academic writing. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. Oh, that's kind of, is that kind of a, um, when you're doing academic writing, I feel like that kills the creative process. Yeah. And all the thing about all the things I realized suddenly that all the things that I needed for academic writing, I had to do the opposite of when I was doing creative writing. Now, actually, that's not entirely true because I think as an academic writer, I learned the discipline of setting down. I knew kind of if you're going to write an academic paper, this is how many hours it's going to take you. There is no shortcut, as you say. You got to go through the process and all that. So I think I learned about the discipline. I think I learned a little bit about what the craft is because there's a sort of a natural structure to academic writing that is really helpful because you calibrate it and you know, well, the introduction is going to be probably about 500 words and the research methodology is going to be this length. And, and I did bring that to the novel a little bit. I did say, well, okay, if I read like a writer, if I read my, go back and read my favorite novel and I see how long is the kind of, you know, the stuff that you taught me, like act, what, when does act one end and what's happened and what key moments have happened? And then what does act two look like? So that's all that analytical stuff. I actually think my academic um, training was really good. It really transferred well, but just as you say, that's the easy stuff. That stuff comes together. If you, if you haven't, if you don't understand the soul of your character, that's where the work is. And, and the, you know, what's driving them and who they are right down deep inside them. Then you, all that stuff is just window dressing. It's the color of your curtains, you know, and you got to find the, the fire or the engine or what is it at the heart of this, that's going to bring this alive. And so learning to just let go of the structure and learning not to have kind of, um, you know, even word count goals for me are not great because yeah. you can fool yourself. You can produce a whole load of words, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've pinned anything of the story down. So I, my big learning, Tony, to go from a, an academic writer to a creative writer was just get to know, just slow down, don't be in a hurry, the book is going to come if you trust it and if you stay with it. And that all sounds really spooky to an academic evidence-based scholar, but every creative writer knows what that means, don't they? Just yeah. trust it, you know, yeah. stay with it. It's just, it's a weird, um, it's almost like a spiritual journey because you're, you're going yeah. into the nothingness and then all of a sudden there's something, but you had to be in the nothingness for a really long time. Yeah, and that's it. Helen Dunmore, a, a writer I greatly admire, said for her writing a book is like going into a dark room and finding the dimmer switch and then just slowly turning up 
the light. And I think that's so powerful because you don't know anything. You go, you've got to trust that when you're in the dark room, it's okay. It's supposed to be dark. This is the first yeah. time you've got in there and you don't know where anything is and all the furniture. You don't, you, you don't know where the window is. You can't find your way around. And very, very slowly, a tiny sliver of light will shed a little bit of light into the corner and you start working there because at least you can see that bit. And gradually the light grows and grows and grows. And then, and then you know everything about it. And it's just, you got to stay in the room. Yeah. And then don't you got to, right, yeah, stay in the room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah, that's what I always love to say about, uh, especially when we're talking about screenwriting, like, don't let them out of the room easily. They need to, they can't keep them in the room if they, you know, people are, and you could tell people are trying to avoid conflict when they're students and they're like, no, 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 no. Get that character back in the room. It feels uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable. And that's the juicy stuff. Yeah. And the other lovely thing I discovered is there's always a scene in my novel that I avoid writing right up to the end. And it is the most, it's, it doesn't give up its secrets to me until I've got brave enough to encounter it. And then it sort of offers itself up to me when I've done all the other work, it says, okay, now you're ready, Sarah, for this, you know, and it tells me, you know, just how profoundly important it is within the context of the story. And it hits off something, you know, something dark or something sad or, you know, something that, you know, I find hard and the rest of the book has been a lead up to that. And so I do I think that a lot of writers talk about that. I'm sure you've had that experience, Tony. I imagine you have where something at the right at the end, something clicks into place and the whole thing starts to make sense. And, and I've yeah. And I've cried and wept and haven't been able to write for a week after and walk yeah. around in a daze because, you know, it's just like, oh, that was it. Oh, but exactly. that was and, and it seems, you know. When it comes down to it, like some of those stuff, it's just like, oh yeah, that was an 18 page scene turned into a, a half a page. And then people are like, oh, it's so breezy. And I felt something. And you're just like, that was the hardest thing to write. <laughs> no. Well, I tell you the story. I, I often tell the story, but my first book is called Back to Black Rick. I'm going to show you the cover. This is the American version. They do oh, like cool. like retro job. It's kind of I love retro. It. Yeah. I'm looking so, at the cover right now for everyone who can't see how beautiful so, it is. It's about a boy. It's, you know, Back to the Future, the movie. So it's basically, oh, yeah. that's the plot arc, except the subject matter is quite different. So it's a boy who lives with his grandfather. And very early on in the story, um, we realized that the grandfather is beginning to suffer, is suffering from dementia. And uh, Cosmo, who's the protagonist, finds this way of going back to the past uh, and he meets his grandfather when he was only 16 and he's like a stable boy in this house. And at the time I was writing this story, my own dad was suffering from dementia. So obviously I was, all I mean, I was a grown woman. I had a mortgage, I had three kids. I had a big job, you know, that was taking up a lot of time. I needed to write this book to channel this great ocean of loss inside me about my own dad. And I and I was it helped me to make sense of this awful thing that was happening. So I was looking. My dad was really fading, and he was such a he, he was my hero. He and I were really close. And you know, this awful day when he looked at me and he didn't know who I was, and I Oof. like I had I couldn't I had to go somewhere with that, Tony. You know, I had to write a, a story around that, and I think and that is where my first novel came from. 
And there's one scene in the uh, in the book, and I was avoiding it for a long time. And it's when um, Cosmo comes. So he goes back into the past and he tells his grandfather, his young grandfather, you have to do something to avoid a disaster. <clears throat> so that when he, he comes back into the present and he says to his grandfather, did you do the thing I asked you to do? And of course, his grandfather has forgotten. And he starts to scream at his grandfather. He starts to say, what kind of a moron would forget something as important as that? Why did you forget? And he starts screaming and swearing at his grandfather. And I was crying and I was talking to my character. I was saying, Cosmo, darling, don't say these awful things to your grandfather because you're going to regret it so much. And you know, it's not his fault and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm having this kind of spiritual moment of my own personal grief. And then the story as it was unfolding and I'm, I'm bawling, crying. And then I'm exhausted going to bed. And of course I get to the page the next day and there's a scene afterwards where he says, granddad, I'm really sorry for saying those awful things. And his granddad says, Cosmo, I don't remember you ever saying anything bad to me. So he gets forgiven in the dementia. It's kind of like that. So, oh, Tony, I mean, it was exhausting for me and it was therapy for me. And it helped me to process one of the most difficult times in my own life. And of course, it was the angry child in me that was raging with my dad for forgetting, but also knowing I, as a grown woman, I couldn't really be raging with him. So I created Cosmo to do the raging for me. And he really did. I mean, that that book, before I wrote that book, I could not speak about the grief of my loss of my dad um, without crying and without finding it just incredibly difficult. That book basically um, was my way through. And I think lots of people, I mean, you know, I think some people are a little bit sniffy about uh, novelists treating their stories as therapy, but for me, that's very real, you know, very real. At the same time, it's um, like we were talking about earlier, you're, you're, or I mean, this, we weren't talking about exactly about this, but it's the elephant in the room that, that we feel and it's, and it's real feelings. And, you know, in, in our, you know, sometimes if we say them out loud, they sound really messed up. It's just, you know, it's there, there were times where I, you know, back when I was in a bad marriage and I was in Europe and I'm like, maybe she'll get hit by a train, you know, and it's, just, it's nothing you ever want to tell anyone. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's just like, and then it becomes story and you dive into our, our places where we need to go there. Because I think we have to go there. Yeah, I mean, t human beings need stories. We have to have stories because otherwise all these dark, weird, you know, um, crazy thoughts that are what it is to be human will find their way out some other way. You know, stories are the lightning rod for all the things that are difficult about being human. And without them, we either turn into the monsters that we've created on the page or we suppress them. So God knows what happens after that. And that's a mic drop moment. Thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million, Tony. It's so lovely to chat. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.